Hello, hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, uh, a podcast about the intersection between science and spirituality. I am Felicity. And I'm Honey. And I'm Astra. No, Astra's not here. Don't worry. She's all good. <laughs> So we're we're coming we're coming at you hot with some some Henny and Fell takes. So get ready, I guess. This episode in particular, we wanted to I guess focus on Asclepius and by extension the greater ancient Greek slash into ancient Roman manners of healing, health, and the medical field and how it intersected with religion. But before that. I guess we'll do our what happened on this day, Henny, since I'm, I'm doing the intro. You want to do that? Okay, so today, May the 16th, marks the birthday of Maria Gaetone Agnesi. And Maria was an Italian mathematician and philosopher who was the first woman in the Western world considered to be a mathematician. In her Propositions Philosophicae in 1738, she presented a series of essays on philosophy and natural science that she had defended in discourses with invited intellectuals. And in 1748, um, her two volumes of analytical institutions were acclaimed to in the academic world as one of the first and complete publications that brought together the works of various mathematicians on various types of analysis. Sadly, after the death of her father in 1752, she devoted herself to charitable work, but as a result died in total poverty in the poorhouse of which she had been the director. Okay, so I guess we're going to get into it. So I will be introducing Asclepius. Asclepius is a very complicated figure, as we will come to learn. He is nowadays seen as the hero god uh, of medicine, but he had he didn't start out as, as a god. There's a lot of mythology surrounding Asclepius. The general idea is that he is the child of Apollo, and at some point at his demise, and then was raised back from the dead, in which some cases he was worshipped as a hero, and then later on in the Hellenistic period, which is after the death of Alexander the Great, he became a god figure. Something that I think was really interesting about him as well is that even though I would say he's not one of the, I don't want to say popular gods, but like he's not maybe as well known today, he was actually worshipped for a really, really long time, from about 1500 BC to 500 AD. And he was also worshipped all over the ancient world, probably related to the expansionist policies of Alexander the Great. So it's just a really interesting figure to get into because he was so popular back then, and yet we don't really hear so much about him now. Asclepius has also, you know, a, a very family that is very related to medicine. So Apollo, most people today don't think of Apollo as an entity of healing but for a long time Apollo was considered like the deity of healing until Asclepius kind of took over which we'll talk a little bit about. Pian Apollo is the healing aspect of Apollo or oftentimes just referred to as Pian. Now there's debate on if Pian was always Apollo or if Pian was his own god. If you read the Iliad it seems like Pian is treated as his own god but definitely by the classical age Pian and Apollo were the same entity. And then Sclepius married a peony and he had five daughters. I'm not going to name all five of them, but the, the older two, Hygieia and Panacea, were also invoked during healing rites and healing rituals and would have their own healing cults as well. 
So maybe we can kind of get into the timeline of Asclepius and kind of how he rose from potentially a real physician into sort of godhood status. The earliest references to his worship were Mycenaean inscriptions around 1500 BC, and it appeared to be kind of rural or folk cults. So these were not in um, particular temples and sanctuaries, but they were probably worshipped from private individuals. And by 900 BC, he was referenced by Homer in the Iliad as the blameless physician. So he appears as a hero who's healing victims from the Trojan War, but he wasn't a god at this stage. He was just an actual physician of unclear identity. And his appearance in the Iliad probably reflects his achievements, which um, elevated him to legendary status. By 700 BC, 200 years have passed, and this is when his ascension to godhood kind of begins. Hesiod begins to refer to him as the child of Apollo and Coronis, which is interesting because, as Fel mentioned, Asclepius is kind of associated with Apollo due to their shared epithets. So he's now the son of Apollo and a mortal woman. The story goes that basically he was the illegitimate baby of Coronis, and in some stories he was killed and then raised up from the dead. And this was the source of his healing powers via Apollo and some, in some stories, um, Chiron, who is a centaur. One of the, I guess I would say probably the most famous myth of Asclepius and his death and later resurrection would be that Asclepius had figured out how to raise people from the dead. And there's multiple tales on how this happened. Some people, one of my other favorite versions of this is someone gets mellified, meaning they die in a jar of honey. And Asclepius spoke to two snakes, and the two snakes told him how to bring this person back from the dead. Remember those snakes. Uh, snakes and healing are very important together. So the two snakes told Asclepius how to bring this person back from the dead, and he did so. And then Zeus was angry because it was just sort of disrupting the natural order. And remember, at this time, Asclepius was not a god. So Zeus killed him. Then I believe Apollo... I'm not sure if Apollo raised him from the dead or if it was just Apollo kind of like begged Zeus and they brought him back to life there's multiple accounts of how of that apparently one of the versions um Hades accused Asclepius of like making trouble in the underworld there's <laughs> there's just a lot of discussion on, on how exactly he died yes he was eventually through either Apollo himself or Apollo beseeching his father Asclepius was resurrected and then later deified so then we start to see the kind of deification of Asclepius a little bit later. Initially, 500 BC, Asclepius is kind of, he's portrayed as someone who is almost greedy. And he's, he's actually a physician who is healing people just for the love of money, which is um, one reason he was supposedly killed. But later in post-Socratic Greece, our representation of the gods changes somewhat. And so they lost some of their kind of more petty and rash characteristics, and they began to embody more moral virtues. In this vein, Asclepius begins to embody the kind of ideal physician and the virtues of bringing people health. And this is the kind of stage where he also begins to be worshipped as a god. And this is backed up by Hesiod's hymns and also Pausanias in 140 AD, where he is, again, explicitly attested to by a god as a god. And the deification process is also reflected in the appearance of his daughters, who Fella's already mentioned, because they also embody concepts related to health, like panacea is panacea, which obviously is a concept we still have today. Hygiea represents hygiene. The other, other children also represent similar characteristics. For Asclepius, we had Pian Apollo, or just Pian, which I will refer to when I say Pian, just know I'm referring to Pian Apollo. Before Asclepius, the temples of Pion were very interesting. I read somewhere that 
The difference between the healing cults of Payan and the healing cults of Asclepius were that all disease was seen, and we're going to get into this, but all disease was seen as sort of the effect of miasma and also potentially divine fate. In order to seek a cure, you would go to Payan in which he would then cure you. Whereas later on, disease seems to be less understood as this moral failing. There is still some of that, which is why I hesitated there. But it's more of like, so Payan sends forth disease as well as heals it. He is not just a god who heals disease. So it's kind of like he, by beseeching him, you you are keeping the disease at bay. Whereas Asclepius is explicitly a healing god. And to my knowledge, does not really have any aspects of sending disease purposely. Whereas Payan, you see this in the beginning of the very beginning of the Iliad, in which they affront a priest of Apollo who then asks Payan to send down a disease and a plague upon these people, and he does. So it's kind of by worshipping and beseeching Payan, not only can you cure disease, but you can also send it forth unto people. Asclepius doesn't really have that nature. So maybe we can talk a little bit about why his cult became so popular, um, because it was really, really far-reaching, as we've mentioned. first thing to mention is that the original worshippers of Asclepius were thought to be kind of private cults, home worship by the poor and the rural. And this is attested to by the Edelstein's, who are famed medical historians. And basically, they claimed that Asclepius, because he took a particular interest in the individual, people would reach out to him, because obviously health is, is probably of paramount importance during antiquity. It's sort of an important step for um, individuals at home, even if they didn't have very much money, and they didn't have very, they didn't have access to sort of extensive temples, they would still be petitioning Asclepius for their help. And then this sort of evolved because the there were numerous plagues in antiquity. For example, typhoid fever was particularly prevalent. There was a plague in Athens around 430 BC. And the importance of Asclepius is attested to by historical documents at that time. So it seems like the importance of health really brought home the importance of this healing god. And the doctors of the time would also take on the title of Asclepius for their job. And, and they would be kind of physicians, but they would also be priests. And it's a bit of a kind of fuzzy definition, but maybe we, you can explain that a little bit more. Finding a little bit what we mean by priest, because priest is a hot word, I would say. Uh, it, this, this happens a lot in the polytheist community. It, it comes around every now and again, the word priest. And I think it happens a lot of other pagan communities too. But specifically in ancient Greece, priests were not necessarily individuals who were, as we see today in like the Christian various churches, various denominations, where they are seen as spiritual leaders. At that time, priests were pretty much solely in charge of caring for the temple. And priests were the benefactors of the temple. So they were the patrons of the temple. They would financially support it, as well as be charged with making sure it was upkept. So it wasn't necessarily that they were spiritual leaders. They were more caretakers of the temple. There is like words for more spiritual leaders. Usually these people more led rituals than they actually were like spiritual leaders, which is where we see with the Asclepians, the physicians and priests, where they are literally taking care of the temple and literally taking care of the people who come into the temple and they are leading these rituals. I hope that distinction makes sense to people. That is what we are referring to by priest. 
It's probably worth pointing out as well that these temples were not necessarily temples like you would think of as, you know, like a church or something, but they were known as sanctuaries. So they were somewhere that you would go to receive healing. And so if your doctor was unable to cure you, they might actually send you to one of these sanctuaries to be healed by Asclepius and the Asclepians. And it, this was a sort of, I don't want to say hospital, but it was it was a shared kind of divine and health purpose. <laughs> So one of the ways that we can see, so we begin to see Asclepius' popularity at the end of the classical age, like really where everyone really looks at with the classical age, which is like towards the end, but not at the end of the Peloponnesian War, uh, because after the Peloponnesian War ends, things get a little hairy. But towards the end, a lot of our sources from that time period, we see beginnings of temples to just Asclepius and not both Pion and Asclepius. This is where we also begin to see certain festivals begin to rise. But it's not until Alexander the Great, who just really liked Asclepius and allegedly um, had the, like dedicated his spear and his breastplate to Asclepius. And we all know how much Alexander the Great loved to spread the Greek religion. So he spread these ideas everywhere. And one can imagine that during the Hellenistic Age, when everything's in upheaval, a lot of war and with globalization also comes a lot of disease you can imagine how this idea of a a more personal god one that is not just like gonna cast a disease on you but is just here to heal you and who was once a person at least in certain myths that he would be seen as very relatable at this time this is really where the hellenistic age is where we see a lot of the i guess bigger gods not i wouldn't say fall out of fashion because they're definitely still big but we see a lot of the smaller, more personal deities come into more favor uh, and gain a lot more worship. So most of, although most of our existing sources on Asclepius, they come from the Greek East. So this includes Athens, Tricca, Pergamon. There was a large sanctuary in Epidaurus and this sanctuary actually explains um, the expansion into Rome. So there was, specifically, there was a plague in 293 BC, I think. And this was so devastating that there was actually a request made to transfer Part of the sanctuary from Epidaurus to Rome and this was established at Tiber Island. So alongside the kind of expansionist policies of Alexander the Great, the popularity of Asclepius as kind of a personal god because obviously as you mentioned he has a very relatable feel. There was a kind of imperative during times of illness to expand the cult in the hope that it would save the health of the population. Another thing I think why the Hellenistic era specifically saw a rise in Asclepius in particular is because the Hellenistic era is when we begin to see weird evidence of proselytizing, which is not really ever seen in a lot of very early uh, pagan religions because uh, it's very much like your god is the god of your country, your land, your people, and like what defines those is very, very broad very broad <laughs> just where you see people just kind of adopt gods because they're like oh that guy's pretty cool but there's not really active proselytizing until the hellenistic era where people will specifically put forth a certain god's mysteries or a certain god's effectiveness and you can see how with asclepius how a combination of proselytizing plus the fact he's a healing god which is like one of the biggest concerns in the ancient world and i would say in this world too you can see why he would become so popular do you know off the top of your head sorry to put you in the spot was there an equivalent to asclepius in rome who was syncretized or was he just purely adopted i think he was just purely adopted because there is not roman version of apollo they just took apollo <laughs> i think asclepius was also just Asclepius. 
That's pretty neat, actually, in a weird way. Because <laughs> I know there, there are somewhere in Germany, there is a temple to Apollo, like a healing temple to Apollo. Apollo was actually syncretized with when the Rome, Romans uh, took over the Gauls and the Celts. Apollo was actually readily syncretized with a lot of Celtic and Gaulish deities. So there are some very fun, weird <laughs> sinks and some of those temples still exist. So I guess we should probably discuss what medicine actually was in ancient Greece and Rome because our conception of medicine is pretty starkly different to back then but there are some similarities. The first point is that a lot of the medical magical practices they were kind of indistinguishable so for example you have this something called pharmakeia which is sometimes compared to the modern conception of pharmacy or pharmaceutical use but it's not quite the same. So pharmacia refers to herbal or use of herbs. Even though some of these herbs would have medicinal properties, there were also ritual elements which were essential to their use. So, for example, you'd have to collect peonies at night, and this was because peonies were associated with the moon, and the silvery brightness of the peonies would only be apparent at nighttime. Or you would have to use certain tools to collect certain plants because of the planetary associations. So there were definitely ritual associations, without which the herbs were not considered to be effective. You also might use the principle of transference, so where you wouldn't actually use the herb yourself, even if it had a medicinal property, you would actually give it to like an animal or something to, to transfer the effect. And we can maybe talk about that later, because I think we have some cool PGM examples. And so even though many of the plants in antiquity have been examined, John Scarborough, for example, examined them around 60 plants, which were outlined in Theophrastus's Inquiry into Plants, and a large number of them did have a pharmaceutical effect that um, can be attested to, it's probable that these would not necessarily have been used in the most efficient way, and they were utilized alongside ritual practice to facilitate healing. So magic and medicine were almost seen as one during this time, and um, our conception of divinity also plays into this. There was a physician, Aristides, and he, quote, decided to submit truly to the god Asclepius, truly as to a doctor, and to do in silence whatever he wishes. He would do this even if it was uh, contrary to the ideas of the attending physicians or contrary even to common sense. Even though Aristides never uh, recovered from his illnesses, he continued to uh, confess the healing god Asclepius as his savior. Savior is an interesting word there. Very few deities actually get the word soter. It's a very, a much more Hellenist, well, not entirely Hellenistic, but you see it thrown around a lot in the Hellenistic age. Medicine in ancient Greece seemed to go from purely in the realm of the divine to being a little bit more, quote, scientific. Put that in quotes because obviously they didn't have that the same concept of science as we do, especially with Hippocrates, who we're going to talk a little bit about. And then back in the Hellenistic age, it seems to go back more into the realm of the seeking the divine, in which usually seek this, if not always seek it through incubation. A testimonial from one of these, from a Steliot Epidaurus, a man whose fingers, with the exception of one, were paralyzed, came as a suppliant to the god. While looking at the tablets in the temple, he expressed incredulity regarding the cures and scoffed at the inscriptions. But in his sleep, he saw a vision. It seemed to him that as he was playing at dice below the temple and was about to cast the dice, the god appeared, sprang upon his hand, and stretched out the patient's fingers. When the god had stepped aside, it seemed to him that he, the patient, bent his hand and stretched out all his fingers one by one. When he had straightened them all, the god asked him if he would still be incredulous of the inscriptions on the tablets in the temple. He answered that he would not. 
Since then, formerly, you were incredulous of the cures, though they were not incredible for the future, he said. Your name shall be incredulous. When the day dawned, he walked out sound. I th- there's a couple other, one of the other testimonials I'm not really going to read because it's kind of gross, but there's a, <laughs> both of the testimonials share the similarity of like an old woman or a man comes in and laughs at the temple and laughs at these cures and then God comes to her in her dream and is like, okay, do you believe in the cures now? And then they're like, yes, yes. It, it has very, like, almost like a Jesus vibes, <laughs> which I guess there is, I guess, a relationship between the healing miracles of Asclepius and healing powers of saints, which would then take over his temples. Yeah, that's really interesting that he was incredulous to begin with. I also saw some similar inscriptions from the same temple where some people came in incredulous. And rather than having a dream where they were healed, they had a dream in which Asclepius basically laughed at them and was like, you believe me now? And the priests would scorn them. And so they were sort of shocked into believing because they were in this environment in which they had basically just experienced humiliation. I think they were also cured after that, but I just thought it was funny. Travel back a little bit in time. Talk about the man, the myth, the skeptic. Hippocrates. I titled this Skeptic Doctor Who Loves to Tell the Tale and Change the World. Hippocrates, if you don't know his name, you've probably heard of the Hippocratic Oath. That's because, you know, it's named after him. He was a physician of the classical period. It is starkly different from a lot of the physicians that came before him, and he's called like the father of medicine. Um, he created the humoral theory, which we talked about briefly before I mean, his Hippocratic school of medicine really changed the ancient Greek world and our world as well because previously medicine as we were talking about was solely in the realm of the divine and like you had to have the gods help in order to do it uh, it had to be a miracle almost all heal almost all healing was seen as a miracle but Hippocrates was really here to kind of create a more systematized i would say study of medicine in which he could heal you know it kind of went out tried to to show that one can heal like without it having to be a miracle and that one can also learn how to do this yeah i think what's what's interesting about him is that he believed in this kind of power of nature to heal like he believed in a sort of a natural order his sort of level of standardization was seeking these natural this natural order and how to restore it so this involved a lot of more holistic therapies like physical exercise um, I think even musical therapy at some point, which is really interesting. And all of these things you can think of as having genuine benefits to somebody. As you mentioned, he was sort of more empirical in his um, approach, although obviously the humors are not all that empirical. Um, right. but he introduced many terms like sim- symptoma for symptoms, diagnosis, therapy, trauma, um, lots of the terms that we still use today. Something also interesting is that certain diseases like epilepsy were previously thought to be of divine origin. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes sense, given that a lot of epileptics have sort of divine visions. But he was somebody who thought of it as more of a disruption of the natural order. And so this represents his more rational approach. It's kind of interesting as well, because his contemporaries also took this even further. So Asclepiades, not Asclepius, later physician, confusing name. Um, and he actually rejected some of these Hippocratic axioms. So he rejected the idea that nature is always able to heal you in favor of a kind of more molecular approach. So amazingly, ahead of his time completely, he suggested that the human body is composed of molecules uh, that are made of atoms. Amazing, right? For the ancient times. Basically allowing the, altering the form, position or flow of these molecules would facilitate healing, which 
if you think about it, is approximately what biochemistry is. And he also favoured, following Hippocrates, uh, he favoured mild therapeutic methods like a healthy diet, exposure to light, massage, physical exercise, etc. All of which would have been beneficial. And later, we even had sceptical physicians like Galen, who, despite their kind of rational approach, were still devotees of Asclepius. I don't know Hippocrates's attitude towards Asclepius. I think when I call him a skeptic, skeptic is like a, a weird thing. Atheism is like a weird thing. Like People will like refer to certain philosophers as atheists. It's like not really a useful term. I say that Hippocrates is a skeptic in the sense he believed, yeah, like we were saying, the power of nature and that these things didn't just have to be divine. Yeah, I mean, he was still a devotee or maybe not devotee, maybe devotee is just too strong a word but he was still somebody who worshipped Asclepius um, and we have uh, attestations to that it's not as if he was completely rejecting the divinity it was more like right like he was kind of incorporating more empirical elements as far as I understand so the PGM the Greek magic papyri people usually put it in the Hellenistic age I would say it's really the Hellenistic age up into early Byzantium that covers like several hundred years um but it's useful to look at because the PGM is a, is a compilation of spells, which magicians were not really like. So like pharmacia and all of these like form like incubation and all of that is part of the general religion at that time. Magicians and spells, for the most part, existed on the fringes. Now there were like some folk spells that were more part of the common religion, but like magicians were very much separate from that so the the magic the greek magical papyri is pretty <laughs> it's a trip and a half sclepius is actually only mentioned once that i could see and i'm not entirely sure what the spell is supposed to accomplish but i will read it out to you taking a field lizard let it down into an oil of lilies until it be deified don't know what that means that's gonna deify a lizard real quick then engrave the image of Asclepius, worshipped in Memphis on a ring of iron from a leg fetter, and put the ring into the oil of lilies in which the lizard was drowned. And when you use the ring, take it and show it to the pole star, saying this spell seven times. Menofri, who sit on the cherubim, send me the true Asclepius, not some deceitful daemon instead of the god. Then take the incense burner, and where you are going to sleep and burn grains of frankincense, and wave the ring in the smoke of the incense, saying seven times the spell... Lord Asclepius appear and wear the ring on the index of your right hand. Yeah, so that one doesn't tell me what it's like, what it's, if it's for healing or if it's just to conjure Asclepius. It's certainly interesting. I think it's interesting that it mentions cherubim in the same sentence as Asclepius as the cherubim is very much not a part of the ancient Greek religion, at least not at first. I was just trying to find out if I could find where, like, what is this supposed to do but i can't really find it many uh speculation as to what this is for this is yeah this is really interesting it's interesting as well because it doesn't seem to include any sort of petition to him at all so some of the spells that not spells necessarily but some of the inscriptions i've seen relating to asclepius are sort of petitions for help whereas this is pretty much just like an invocation but it's unspecific 
I mean, it, you can't imagine that it's for anything but help because of um, his associations. He's a god. It's also interesting because a lot of the stuff in the PGM is like pretty much just curses. So you'd be, you know, like drawing somebody up to, you know, bind your lover or um, or your romantic rival. But this seems like it's more explicitly just for own health benefits. I'm going to read a theories of PGM spells that are various forms of medicine. I think it's interesting for the PGM, to my understanding, we don't really know all that much of the people who were performing it. So it's hard to tell for each individual one, you know, like it wasn't like they found a whole complete book. These were all different papyri, which is why they span so many years. But likely the healing spells are pretty straightforward. They are very interesting, though. Here's one. For migraine headache, take oil in your hands and utter the spell. Zeus sowed a grape seed. It parts the soil. He does not sow it. It does not sprout. Don't know what that's supposed to mean. For fever with shivering fits. Take oil in your hands, say seven times. I'm not going to say the word of power out loud, but it's noted, should be noted that it is definitely not Greek. <laughs> they always say like, and say the name or say the usual, which I'm never sure what that means. Uh, and spread the oil from the sacrum to the feet. For ascent of the uterus. I conjure you, O womb, by the one established. <laughs> I love that. I know. This one's so good. By the one established over the abyss. Before heaven, earth, sea, light, or darkness came to be, you who created the angels, being foremost, words of power, and who sit over the cherubim, who bear your own throne, that you were turn again to your seat, and that you do not turn into the right part of the ribs, or into the left part of the ribs, and that you do not gnaw into the heart like a dog, but remain indeed in your own intended proper place, as long as I conjure by the one who in the beginning made the heaven and the earth and all therein. Hallelujah. Amen. Write this on a tin tablet and clothe it in seven colors. Interesting. So these are not conjuring Asclepius, but they're just like magical charms, I guess. Yeah, to, these are um... all various magical charms. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's interesting. It almost has like a Gnostic feel to it. The idea of the, the womb um, that created the, the whole earth. That's a very Gnostic idea. Early Christian. This one's pretty good. Okay, the charm of the Sicilian Felina for headache. Flee, headache. Lion flees beneath a rock, wolves flee, horses flee on uncloven hoof, and speed beneath the blows of my perfect charm. I like that. It's like very, very obvious sympathetic magic in a lot of these. The contraceptive one I thought was pretty good. Yeah, I'm going to skip that Do you want to read the contraceptive? Yes. Okay, so the the title for this is A Contraceptive, the only one in the world. Take as many bitter vetch seeds as you want for the number of years you wish to remain sterile. Steep them in the menses of a menstruating woman. Let her steep them and her own genitals and take a frog that is alive and throw the bitter vetch seeds into its mouth so that the frog swallows them and release the frog alive at the place where you captured him and take a seed of henbane steep it in mare's milk and take the nasal mucus of an ox with grains of barley put these into a piece of leather skin made from a fawn and on the outside bind it up with mule hide skin and attach it as an amulet during the waning of the moon which is in a female sign of the zodiac on the day of Kronos or hermes Oh, that would be Saturday or Wednesday, right? Well, you got time. If you can find a mule. I got time. (laughs) Mix in also with the barley grains from the ear of a mule. So that one's um pretty interesting. That one's another one where like it's hard to tell the gender. Yeah, it's it's supposedly. What I've seen written about this one is that it was written for a man who wanted their partner not to become pregnant. So he would be doing the spell and she would be doing the uh, incubating the bitter vetch seeds. But it's interesting because this seems like, like a lot of nonsense on the, on the first page of it, but actually a lot of the principles in it 
make sense when they're explained. So the use of the waning moon is the, it reflects the waning fertility of the person. And it seems like the menstrual flow of the female subject and the use of the frog, the symbol of fecundity, that's also supposed to represent somebody's fertility waning. Some of the herbs that are included, like bitter vetch and henbane, henbane also being very poisonous, they do have attested gynecological effects, but rather than the individual, so the woman in question, using them, they would be transferred to somebody, so they'd be transferred to the frog. That was kind of the difference between medicine in our modern era, where we would simply choose the molecular properties of the drug, and kind of magico-medical rituals back in the PGM, where you would be relying on both of these pharmacological properties and the kind of transferative principles, the sympathetic magic, all the layering of these concepts. So I just think it's really fascinating because there's a lot of stuff in there um, once you get past the the weirdness of it. These ones are fun. These are other contraceptives, which not to be noted as which. So the previous guy was lying because that's not the only contraceptive in the world. There's like <laughs> at least four in the book. <laughs> a contraceptive. Pick up a bean that has a small bug in it and attach it as an amulet. The following spell. A contraceptive. Take a pierced bean and attach it as an amulet after tying it up in a piece of mule hide. What do you think the relevance of that is? Like, the beans are usually associated with, like, necromancy, right? Like, like right. evil spirits, that kind of thing. So why oh, do you think beans? An interesting thing, though, is I believe another thing said about Pythagoras is that he didn't like beans. Because I think there was a relation between beans and like <laughs> try to how do i say this on this podcast without kitty as an explicit warning <laughs> well i guess i can say yeah so he saw beans as like sperm almost so there is some connection between beans and sperm and i so see so piercing it maybe would it. be like yeah that actually makes a lot of sense to me like it, it's piercing it binding it putting a bug in it to kind of destroy its properties that does make sense right um i don't think it's effective but uh, there you go. Yeah, please do not get your contraceptive advice from the PGM. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's the, these last two. I'm just gonna read because they're fun. For a headache, Osiris has a headache. Ammon has a headache at the temples of his head. Esenephithis has a headache all over her head. May Osiris's headache not stop. May Ammon's headache at the temples of his heads not stop until he first stops everything. Dot dot dot. I think it's supposed to be like it's like almost cursing the gods saying like may you have your headache until my headache goes away yeah it's almost like treating them like a demon or something like it's you're you're forcing their hand and forcing them to comply by threatening them which is interesting because it contrasts so much with the kind of reverential way that gods are worshipped in other contexts another thing that's interesting about the Hellenistic era is that especially the PGM specifically like there's a spell in here that you like bind Kronos or something to do you will yeah it's very bizarre the last one I will read it's interesting because it's this is when we start trailing into Byzantium for childbearing come out of your tomb Christ is calling you place a potsherd on the right thigh that one's very interesting I like the idea of the the womb as a tomb I don't know what the piece of pottery on the right thigh has to do with anything. Do you think it's supposed to represent this is like pure speculation, but you know how the boulder is supposed to kind of rolled away oh, maybe. from the face? So it's supposed to be like symbolic of that like boulder. And so maybe. it's now on the on the thigh, so it's kind of uh, It's like out of the way of the tomb. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, of that world. is complete speculation, but interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what half the people in the PGM are on. <laughs> Probably um, henbane or something. 
I, I really love as well, like a lot of these people, they, they're inscribed on like, well, cursed tablets particularly are inscribed on lead. So it would take you quite a long time to do. So these people were, they, 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 they committed quite a lot of effort to putting these things down. Um, they must have been quite important to whoever wrote them. And some of them are absolutely unhinged. Like, it's crazy. My favorite PGM spell ever is how to ride, and I, this is a direct quote, how to ride a crocodile on the Nile. I love, I love favorite it. one. That's my favorite it. one. You literally like bind a demon to like go find you a crocodile and then you're going to do it. My other favorite is I think it's like Democratus's or Democritus's um, party tricks. Those ones are hilarious. They are very not safe for work. Well, most of them aren't safe for work. One of them is how to start a fight at a symposium. You throw a rock and it literally says throw a rock in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's a spell. That's just like causing chaos. Yeah. (laughs) Back to Asclepius, and we've little, I don't know, done a little detour on what was going on medically in the world, either in the Hellenistic world or the classical age. So yeah, remember those snakes that we mentioned earlier? <laughs> Here they come. Yeah, so um, something that you might recognize um, as a symbol of Asclepius is his rod. Something that's weird, weird coincidence, because we didn't actually decide to do this episode until after I posted this on Instagram, but there is a picture of the rod of Asclepius in our most recent Instagram post. So you can go and see it. But it's fairly recognizable. It is a staff with one snake curled around it. Why snakes? We're not sure. But snakes and dogs were classically associated with Asclepius. And snakes were said to sort of roam the grounds of his sanctuaries. It's possible that they were associated with him in the staff um, because snakes would be such a grave source of injury for many back in ancient times. And so Asclepius' ability to heal such a wound was kind of a testament to his almost supernatural physician prowess. Um, another association is with the Gorgon, the snake-haired woman, whose blood Asclepius was given by Athena and um, whose blood with which he was able to raise the dead. So these are two possible snake associations. Something else that's important to mention is that the Caedicus is not the rod of Asclepius. I think this is something that annoys a lot of mm-hmm. Hellenists. Uh, the Caedicus is, uh, it has two snakes on it and they are classically associated with Hermes. It's a symbol of commerce. So if you have that on your medical system, it is probably an American medical system. <laughs> We touched a little bit about incubation incubation in a couple episodes, but I've been doing like a bit more reading into it. And it's actually like, it's really not just as simple as sitting down and dreaming. There's actually a lot of rites that go on beforehand. So generally in the rite of incubation, the people who were sick were had to go through an initial stage of purification and preliminary sacrifices. Usually an animal in this case maybe wine but i think in the case of illness it would be an animal the asclepian priests would then kind of try to invoke or determine to see if asclepius is here and then kind of be like hey he's here and then they would spend the night in the inner sanctuary uh this is then where the god would appear to them in a vision sometimes he was a human Sometimes he was a serpent or a dog, as we kind of touched on earlier. And then usually he would touch the part of your body or he would give you, like, tell you the cure. Interestingly, the word uh, therapeutai, which is where we get therapy and therapeutic from, is another word for certain priests of Asclepius, which I think is. Uh, I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, it makes sense that they chose that for therapist as well, since early psychology was dream interpretation figuring out what's wrong with you based on your dreams which i was like oh that's just that's just freud asclepius didn't cure you in your dream 
he would then you would tell your dream to the priest and they would interpret it i found a very interesting a very detailed writing from alias aristides who i mentioned earlier from sacred orations in which he spoke on like how more more in depth uh, including herbs and whatnot i'm not gonna read the whole thing although it is very interesting but i would be here for a while in the sacred theater were a number of men clad all in white who had come to visit the god. In their midst stood I and delivered a, a panegyric in honor of the god Asclepius, in which many other things I told how he often intervened in my course of life. Only recently he had ordained that I should drink wormwood in thin vinegar in order to be relieved of my complaint. He also told me of a sacred stairway, if I rightly remember, and of an epiphany of the god and of his wondrous deeds. You have a sense of contact with him and are aware of his arrival in a state of mind intermediate between sleep and waking. You try to look up and are afraid to, lest before you see him he shall have vanished. You sharpen your ears and listen, half in dream and half awake. Your hairs stand up, tears of joy roll down, a proud kind of modesty fills your breast. How can anyone really describe this experience in words? If one belongs to the initiated, he will know about it and recognize it. When morning came following this vision, I called in the physician Theodotus, and when he came, I told him about the dream. So then he, he talks about how the physician also had dreamt about his illness, in which Asclepius instructed him about this man, uh, Aristides' illness. Since the dreams agreed, we applied the remedy, and I drank more of it than anyone had ever drank before. And on the following days, at God's direction in equal quantity, the relief it brought me and the good it did me simply cannot be described. Many other things of the same kind took place both before this and afterward and showed me the same kind of help. Yes, then he, he calls Asclepius, uh, besides Zeus, the highest and best of gods. The following night, he ordered me again to smear myself with mud and in the same way and then to run around the temple three times. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like, oh, maybe there's kind of something to it there. I was trying to think what the one word could do, but I'm not sure what the mud it's, it's, yeah. is doing in this formulation. It is really interesting, though, that he's so specific about like the dream is not just, you know, oh, you have, you know, a stomach issue or whatever, but it's very, very specific about what it needs him to do. And like the wearing right, like the purification, it's it's all very kind of clear and established. I also think it's pretty awesome, like the way that he's like, I don't know if any if anyone's ever had like a divine experience, the way he describes it, like not wanting to look up and like having a modesty and not being able to describe it. It it, it was very it humanized these people a lot to read that because the sense of awe and also desperation in which, you know, they've come here usually because they're they can't find a cure on their own for something. And it's also just written in a very, like, most of the steelies are written in a very, like, this is a testimonial <laughs> of how awesome Yeah, they're like Google reviews is. or something. Like, it, yeah. it's really Yeah. <laughs> but this one is, like, very, very intimate, which is very interesting. And, like, yeah, he gives descriptions of herbs and then also, like, smearing himself with mud. So it's interesting to be able to read, like, what the actual, quote-unquote, cures were. And also the fact that there were, I mean, we, we do know this from other inscriptions, that there were actual physicians there. So they wouldn't just be, be, be priests, right. as we mentioned, but they were actual doctors. So... Um, these kind of collection of expertise probably also helped because we had, you know, we didn't have a lot of medical knowledge in the ancient world, but those who did have the, that kind of expertise would be collected at these centers. And so it would be kind of a good uh, place for people to go. Do you think that, that, that it actually works? Do you think incubation worked? I mean, he claims that he did, but he was also chugging wormwood. So I'm sure he... More than uh, anybody who'd ever drank. I know, I like that specification. Uh, also, God wormwood i don't know if you've ever had a wormwood tincture before but like wormwood 
in alcohol is already pretty nasty. I mean, like absinthe. <laughs> but a wormwood in vinegar? That's disgusting. <laughs> Probably freaking his body just was like, whoa. I'm not sure. I mean, I think to a degree it can work either through what we talked about in our very first episode i think first or second episode about the placebo effect it could very well have been placebo but i mean like i i also am not one to knock miracles i do believe in miracles i do believe gods can heal now i'm not advocating at all that one should you know do a spell from the pgm and pray to asclepius uh if you have a very treatable illness but i think you know back back in the day everything was kind of devastating in a way like I was even thinking about it, like, if you needed classes, like, what were you to do before freaking classes were invented, you know? Like, the human body is very fragile, so I definitely think that there could be something to these cures. But definitely a lot of them were weird and not actually cures. What I think is um, was, was fun about Aristides is that he notes in that same sort of testimonial, if you like, that he, he says that the miraculous events of the old days did not occur anymore in this day. And yet, you see him attesting to this literal divine experience that he had. So even though, you know, he's, he's having this divine experience and he's saying that it's not a miracle. It's just a reality of medicine at the time. Like, it was so inextricable from the divine that, I don't want to say it's normalized, but there was definitely, like, a really strong belief in, in it working. Obviously, there are attestations of, I guess, what you could call miracles at the, at the sanctuaries. People did die there, and we have attestations to that. For example... Uh, the Roman Antonius was much thanked when he just donated money to build a stoa, uh, which would be uh, basically like a, a hospice and place for dead people afterwards. Um, and it was outside the border at Epidauros. So basically, this would be for where people who are about to die would be transferred. So we have evidence of basically end of life care at the sanctuaries, as well as healing going on, which suggests a kind of it wasn't a guarantee that you would be cured, but you would also be receiving What's the word I'm looking for? What's the word for end of life care? You know what I mean. Um, yeah, I know what you care. mean. Palliative of... care. Yeah, yeah. You'd be yeah, you'd be receiving palliative care. Um, and I think there is evidence. Like even if you are skeptical about the influence of the divine, I think that you could definitely argue like the placebo effect, the collated expertise of everybody who is there, the argument of spontaneous remission because some things do just get better. So your immune system could fight off an infection. Um, it can even, in some cases, get rid of cancers. And also the holistic focus on health from doctors of the time. So focus on the body and the mind, the dietary changes, all of those could affect some of these miracles, even if you don't believe in the actual miraculous stuff. So I think it's pretty cool. And I think that it's kind of the foundation of our modern me medical system and should be afforded the same level of respect. Yeah, I guess, hmm, closing thoughts. I don't know, where do you see Asclepius in modern religion i find that a lot of pagans i think interestingly enough i mean there is obviously like a very and i can't overstate this enough like there's obviously a very healthy like you know get your medication get etc etc but i think sometimes or i wonder about uh, a lot of these healing gods seem to be like you know like asclepius isn't that popular anymore right because we have modern medicine and so where do you see a god like asclepius fitting into a a modern I don't know, practice, I guess. Well, a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I definitely agree that he is somewhat neglected now and seen as sort of an, I don't say unpopular god, but definitely less less written about, which is so funny given how popular he was back in the day. I would say that as part of my practice specifically, he's somebody who I kind of pray to for 
inspiration and the same thing with hygiene and I would do obviously as a microbiologist hygiene is very important to me so this is something that I want to sort of embody in my work and so those are things that I would um, seek their guidance for and um, seek their inspiration for um, I don't know necessarily how that would transfer to somebody who maybe doesn't have the career path that I have but I still think that there are holistic benefits to your health that come from your mindset you know I, I don't believe that mindset can <laughs> can can heal you but I just mean paying attention to your health and including a spiritual practice as part of that can be important to some people and so I think that um, worship of Asclepius can be important in that regard. Asclepius is definitely one of my hearth cults whatever people like a god that's close a god that I worship a lot. I actually put like all of my meds like I have a little altar to Asclepius. I have an aloe vera that I named a peony. That is so uh, nice. Aloe vera <laughs> aloe vera is very healing around my aloe vera i have all of my meds and i also have like other holistic stuff like i have my hand sanitizer i have cough drops etc like any sort of medicinal thing i mean yeah i think like i said like i do believe like miracles happen and you know things aren't always cut and dry i think there there is a place i mean especially in you know pandemic times i think there's there's definitely a place for honoring asclepius and again like you know get vaccinated wear a mask etc etc but i think things a lot like disease of any kind whether pandemic or or not can can cause a, a desperation in people and i think there's no shame in turning to a deity or a saint entity etc uh and in addition to whatever you are doing i think that you might find honestly some of my most like powerful moments have been with uh, gods of health at various points because health is so fickle and they can be like a, a bedrock of support right like i think everybody wants good health it's a, like the most important thing to most people and i would never suggest that somebody replace their um yeah. their, their, their medicine let's emphasize that with a spiritual practice but i think that it can be a really comforting and um, valuable sort of addition I think with that, I think we've reached the end. I forget what Astro says here. Uh, check us out on Instagram, just test tubes and cauldrons. Uh, we have a Discord, which I will include in the link. Please join us. Uh, you can tag yourself as a humor. Uh, <laughs> uh, and if you're in the Discord and you haven't done it, please tag yourself as a various humor. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's very fitting. Yeah, we have fun discussions. I think that's all I have, I guess. We, we so, miss you, Astro. We miss you, Astro. If you're listening, <laughs> we love fun. you. <laughs> All right. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks.